0: This podcast is proudly brought to you by Sky Racing and Ingus, number one in its field. In all my years in the Sydney media, I've had no better mate than Graham McNeese, universally known as the Shadow. Graham started his media career as a race caller, covering all three codes at different times and doing the job very capably. He had many years as a producer and presenter on Channel 10, Club Superstation and Sky Channel, all the while working on his greatest passion, the creation of television and video documentaries on a wide range of subjects. His projects have always been carefully selected, expertly produced, well-written and presented by people who Graham felt would best suit the documentary in question. He has just released his latest and one of his best. It's called The Master's Apprentices, the story of Theo Green, master tutor of apprentice jockeys who developed the talents of some of Australia's best riders. One of his star protégés was Ron Quinton, now a successful trainer and, like his old boss, a master tutor of kids. Let's talk to Graham McNeese about his latest doco, The Master's Apprentice's Shadow. It's an absolute delight to have you on the podcast.
1: Well, Tabby this for me, and I thank you most humbly for that uh, lovely introduction. Um, I've had a wonderful time over all those years. <clears throat> Very satisfying being able to produce uh, documentaries particularly on individuals and, and great achievements in sport and yeah, not only on sport but other uh, facets of life. And um, I've always treasured your friendship, mate. It goes back a long, long time, as you said, um, but it's, um, you're a great mate.
0: Thanks, Shad. The documentary, uh, the one we're talking about, The Master's Apprentices, has been in the pipeline for more than 20 years. Mm. Now, you interviewed Theo shortly before he died in 1999, but you had to put that tape aside because of increasing commitments at Sky Channel.
1: That's right, yes. I was, uh, in 1995, I left Sky um, for the start-up of Foxtel, and that was involved in producing a lot of material for Foxtel. And At the same time, I did it on my own back because I always promised to do the Theo Green story, the Master of Apprentices. And um, as you said, I interviewed Theo way back then. I interviewed Gordon Spinks at that time, um, John Duggan, Malcolm Johnson, and uh, a few others way back then. And then when I was called back to Sky in 1998, you'll recall this, mm. the opening day of Sky Racing into the homes in September 5, 1998. Mm. Uh, 8. Uh, I always meant to get stuck into the Theo Green, but as you say, commitments over all those years Mm. prevented me from doing so. And um, I had promised um, his daughter and um, others involved with Theo Green that I would, I would do it. It took me 20 years to do it, but more <laughs> than 20 years, 20, 23 or 24 years.
0: Yeah. Um, to you told me, but, Shad, that every time you looked at those tapes sitting yeah. on the shelf, you felt guilty.
1: I felt guilty, all right. Did I? What? <laughs> um, but then, you know, with the help of uh, Peter Valandis and Sky Racing, um, I went to them and uh, they supported me. And so I started the ball rolling again about a year ago. And uh, it's, I think, turned out very well. And of course, as you said, that Ron Quinton uh, became uh, a so-called master of apprentices, just like his boss.
0: Mm.
1: And uh, his story is fascinating as well.
0: The documentary premiered on Sky Thoroughbred Central, and it'll get plenty of reruns uh, on the Sky Network. But for those who want to add it to their collection of your classics, what procedure should be followed?
1: Oh, uh, well, they'll be available at our www.shadowproductions.com.au site. Mm-hmm. So they can pay by credit card there. And it will be ready to go probably in about two weeks' time.
0: Great. Great. I think yep. it's time our podcast listeners got to know a little bit more about the background of the man they call Shadow. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any idea who was responsible for that nickname?
1: Yes. <clears throat> I've never told this story out uh, publicly, tapping. Mm. but here he goes. Yeah, it was Peter Bosley. Mm. Peter Bosley, uh, who used to be on um, TUE, and those days he's on TUE for – Hell of a long time. Mm. And um, it was one midweek meeting. I used to fill in for Des Hoisted. I was contracted to TUE mm. as the fill in for cares. back in those days. This is going back a long time, back in the 70s. And uh, I was considerably overweight too, you may recall, Tabby. <laughs> <laughs> used to have a nickname for me one with egg. Big Mac. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, big Mac. <laughs> Anyhow, um, back in those days, the, 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 the toad boards weren't, aren't what they are today. They were manual and they were out the back and I was calling at Canterbury. Mm. So they had to step out of the broadcast box onto the roof. You had the microphone around, neck, mm. and you'd give them uh, the, the toad prices of what they were from one to, to whatever it was. Mm. <clears throat> Pardon me. Anyhow... Um, as I moved out onto the, the deck, Peter Bosby came over and said, As Graham McNeese steps onto the roof at Canterbury Racecourse, he casts a giant shadow. Oh, my
2: gosh.
1: And I said, Oh, thank you, Ted. Anyhow, I, when I went back and threw back to the studio, and he said, Thank you, Shadow. And every time he crossed to me from that moment was the shadow. at Canterbury. Here he is.
2: Goodness me. Hasn't it, just, it
1: stuck? Hasn't it well, stuck? Well, hasn't it bloody all stuck, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but anyhow, people from
0: five years old and 98 call you shadow.
1: Well, uh, yes. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not so proud of it, but I never tell the story as to the reason why and how it came about until until today. So there's an exclusive for you.
0: Oh, it's a beauty. <laughs> You were the eldest of six kids born to Sid and Marion McNeese, three boys, three girls, and I'm proud to say that one of your sisters, Deidre, is among Uh, my dearest friends. You uh, grew up in the inner suburb of Croydon Park where your dad had a butcher shop. Did dad want you to follow in his footsteps?
1: Oh, yes, I think he he definitely... um, He probably deep down knew I was going to follow in his footsteps. Mm. It, well, first of all, we started with a butcher shop in in Roselle, mm. Darling Street, Roselle, which was nothing like the Roselle Balmain of what it is today. Mm. It was a tough area and the wharfies and all those sorts of things. Um, and then in, he and Nana bought another shop in um, Croydon Park, as you say. So we moved from Haverfield to Croydon Park, mm. two-story place, six kids, uh, mum and dad, grandpa and 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 um, we just, I I used to, five days a week, I'd come home from school and I'd do the deliveries Mm. um, and then on Saturday I'd be down help serving with Dad and Mum in the shop Mm. and and everything was finished by midday. Yeah. Um, So we were well fed, well well fed on meat.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Before (laughs) we leave those deliveries you're talking about, yeah. You often delivered orders to customers on a push bike that had oh. a little, a little storage basket on the handlebars.
1: Yeah. Well, it was a pretty sizeable one actually, Tappy. They, they yeah. had a small wheel, and yeah. un- unlike about half the size of the back wheel, yeah. but this big uh, basket on the front. I used to have to deliver to various customers all around where we lived. Mm-hmm. And um, one day I had a. Bad accident actually. Um, I was driving up. We had a customer called Wardell House, which used to be for the elderly. It was run by the Methodist Church, and they had big orders, and quite often, you know, were unable to take holidays because they needed their orders in every time, like five or six times a
2: week.
1: Anyhow, I I was driving. I left and drove, started to ride up to the hospital took a back road which had new gravel on it, mm-hmm. and um, as I'm going in, I went to break, and as it, I broke it jammed and it threw me up in the air, oh. but it also threw up 65 short loin chops, 10 pound of sausages, and 8 pound of tripe all over the, <laughs> all over the street. <laughs> wow. Oh, and I, was, I had gravel in my knees, and you know, a couple of neighbours came out from where I'd fallen, and and they called Dad and I ended up at Western Suburbs Hospital. Yeah. I'm not sure what happened to the chops and the tripe. <laughs> but so I'll on. never forget that. I'll never forget it.
0: Mate. Yeah, so what year are we talking about? Oh, uh,
1: 1962 maybe.
0: Goodness. 60,
1: yeah, around then. Yeah. I was still at school.
0: The year I even thought. Stevens won the Cup. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Now,
0: even, good on Yeah. Mum and Dad operated another little business in the butcher <laughs> shop, which was well patronised by regular customers.
1: Yes, well, I'm not too sure, well patronised, but you know, we had plenty of beds. Dad would close the shop, my mum and dad would close the shop at 12, with clean up. And then up in the office, um, there was, that's where the phone for the shop was. Mm. And it was a little SP. Operation up there, mum and dad, and and I would take a lot of the calls, what have you, mm. and then oh, I've got arguments that start you know, where to lay off, and, but anyhow, that that operated for quite some time. The way they used to do it to a lot of customers, they come in the shop on Saturday morning, and they would order a leg of ham. Uh, five (laughs) chump chops, you know, a pound of sausages. (laughs) And there. And then in the other hand, they'd hand me, before I could wrap it up, a a little note or a card or something, and in there would be the bets. Yeah. You know, two pound on Tullock, 10 shillings on Grecian Vale or whatever it may be at the time. Mm. So um, we never got caught, thank God. But we weren't weren't all that big. You you said a little operation. You're quite right. It was a little operation. But it, <clears throat> there were, at times there was a lot of angst, yeah. um, and Mum loved her bets too. She'd have fifty cents each way of this, and and Mum would something we'd lose during the day, and Mum would with long shot winners, yeah. she'd win. You know, yeah. she had fifty to 60, She was very tinny, Mum. Yeah, tinny. Um. So, uh, oh no. At one days. time, T- Tappy. One Saturday afternoon, my, our Uncle Jim dropped in for a cup of tea, and um, which is not the The least you want him to come in of a Saturday afternoon. And uh, so I had to pull the phone plug out down in the office, rush upstairs, under the bed, plug it in up there, and take the bets there, and whisper. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, why are you whispering? Oh, it's all right. Uh, no problem. Uncle came over to visit so they'd try and wind him up with his cup of tea and scones and yeah. out the door and I'd go back downstairs.
0: Now, why couldn't, you trust, why couldn't you trust Uncle Jim with that secret?
1: Well, he was very religious. <laughs> yeah. um, he was not keen about me getting involved with uh, race calling and all that sort of thing. Hmm. He might have been right, I don't know. But anyhow, uh, no, he was a wonderful Uncle Jim, but oh, very righteous, if you know what I mean.
0: Yeah, a bit narrow-minded.
2: Narrow-minded, Yeah. yeah. Your
0: dad was a very keen boxing fan. Yeah. And, and he'd gotten to know a bloke called Frank Kennedy in the fight game.
1: Yeah, that was back in the 40s, I think mean, it was. Mm-hmm. 50s. And um, Frank was a. 50, now, 50. Frank was promoting in the 60s. Mm. So it would have been in the 50s at some time.
0: Yeah, well, Frank, and, of course, um, became a greyhound caller. And he yep. was calling the dogs for. A fascinating little radio station called 2KA Katoomba, which could be heard on the fringe of Sydney. A lot of people in the uh, outer Sydney suburbs could clearly pick up 2KA. So they had a market, and under Frank's tutelage, you got to cut your teeth as a greyhound caller.
1: Yes, that's when the TAB started betting on those uh, races uh, during the weekends, Saturday nights, of course they did that. Um and how it came about was we used to sell chickens as well mm. in the shop and now they, they were a delicacy back in those days, not not like today. Um they were you know, more expensive. And uh the fellow that used to sell, would buy the chickens from from his chicken farm also had a greyhound trialing track mm. out of Chipping Norton mm. called Clary Moorhead. And um He asked me would I like to come out and call uh, the trials once a week. I think he paid me 10 quid, Mm. uh, which was quite a little bit of money then. And, of course, the trialing track and the greyhounds, he knew Frank Kennedy, and I eventually met up with Frank, and he asked me to come out, would I like to come up uh, to the provincial greyhound meetings and learn the trade, so to speak. Mm. And that's what I did and started up and I'd be working. Those days I was working I just out of the shop. Dad was very upset with me not following on in the butcher shop business. And I worked for Queensland Insurance in town. And then at five o'clock I'd rush to Wynyard Station, then catch the train to Granville, which is normally a generally fast train. Frank would be waiting there. And on Monday night I go to Wollongong, Gosford Tuesday, Bulleye Wednesday, Deppert Thursday, mm-hmm. and when Richmond started up on the Friday nights, Richmond a Friday night as well. Me. And that's how I, you know, I used to get one race to call, mm-hmm. and then when he went on holidays, well, I called uh, the meetings until he got back. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, Frank later became two UE's greyhound caller, and you that's went right. along with him, and you've already mentioned that you became official understudy. To the station's chief caller, Des Hoisted, and you'd call a race or two at the midweek meetings, and that's how you got the name Shadow. And when Des went on holidays, you'd do the gallops and the Harold Park trots on a Friday. Yeah, that's right. Yes,
1: I did, Um, and I loved it. I really did. But uh, Frank went to to where we started doing Wentworth and the Harold Park dogs of a Saturday night. and in those days, um, the, eventually Harrow Park closed, the Greyhound, which was the greatest track of all, I believe, mm. um, and everything went to Wentworth Park. But um, I was very fond of Frank. He was uh, like he became, and he, as did his family, uh, became my second family. Mm. And uh, they were wonderful years, and he was very generous and. Helping me out and calling the races, as was Des.
2: Yeah.
1: I remember one day we Canterbury, happy uh, you would have been there next door. Yeah. I called the wrong horse in a finish. Yeah. It was trained by Albert McKenna and he had two horses in it. Can well, you imagine what I felt like? Yeah. Des got on and corrected everything. I said, Des, I'm, I'm going. I think mean, I was still working there. I was going back to work. Yeah. <clears throat> and he said, Now you're calling the next race. I said, No, he said, if you don't call the next race, don't come back anymore. Yeah. So he made me call the next race.
0: Yeah, that was wise of Des. It's like falling off a horse. You've got to get back on it.
1: Mm. Yeah. So I overcame that. And, uh, yeah, so it was uh, exciting days.
0: Shad, we better take a break on the podcast. We'll be back with you in just a moment. A catalogue of almost 200 horses will be offered for sale at the final English Auction of the Year, the 2019 Ready to Race Sale at Riverside Stables on Tuesday, October 22nd. All horses are two-year-olds, broken in and prepared by experienced horse people and presented for sale literally ready to race. Each horse will undertake a breeze up session which is a gallop ending in a 200 metre sprint. Each breeze up will be recorded which will enable prospective buyers to get a gauge on a horse's action, size and potential ability. There'll be an additional Breeze up session this year at Eagle Farm in Brisbane on Monday, September the 23rd, and other sessions will be held at Cranbourne, September the 13th, Warwick Farm, September 20th, Taupo in New Zealand, September the 23rd, with a second session at Warwick Farm on Friday, October the 18th. The strength and quality of the English Ready to Race sale catalogue is unparalleled in Australasia. The Bong Bong Cup was enormously popular in the 1970s, so much so that TUE sent you down to cover the event in 1973, and it's a day you'd rather forget.
1: (laughs) Yes, well, they sent down a double-decker bus of personalities. Uh, I drove down with a mate called Tommy Green, and uh, Peter Johnson uh, was sort of my offside of them calling Races. Do you remember, Peter?
0: I do. Spoke to yeah. him recently.
1: Yeah, fantastic young man.
0: Mm.
1: Anyhow, um, picturing Bong Bong, for those who haven't seen it back in those days, it was set in a paddock, and um, this right in the middle, the winning post was where it normally is in the official stand, which could have for about 15 people, that's about all, and all down the home straight, and from the start, they'd start the bong-bong cup at the top of the straight, run out of the straight, and they right in front of them, there was this mass, massive hill in the centre of the track. Mm-hmm. So they couldn't see anything went over the back until they came to the home turns. You had to rely on the caller. Anyhow, I was, at those days, I was, Bert Richman asked me to be the caller, mm-hmm. and two, we sent the bus down, and they were going to do a delayed broadcast of the bong-bong cup. And it was always on C- Caulfield Cup, so I always remember. And they used to get huge crowds. And I think the crowd was nearly 10,000. Mm. You could actually vote there on the day. I'm sure it was the elections. Mm. And uh, you could vote there. Anyhow, but of course they drink so much and get out of hand, the crowd. So I made my way up to the top of the hill where there was a, an elevated stand yeah. uh, for me to climb the steps and call with my mate Tommy Green, with a steward, um, who, he had a full view of the race, obviously. And of course, you know, drunks trying to climb up, drag coins, oh, you've got no idea. Mm. And I had to do like a full circle on a bit, um, turning around and calling the race. Mm. Anyhow, I called the race and down to the winning post, sure and fast, within the finish, I remember that. Mm. And I said, right, Peter, you take over now. I've got to get down to the to the secretary's office and transfer this race back to TUE. Anyhow, as I'm walk, starting to walk down, I had this big Uher tape recorder that I was carrying. and I'd been in the previous night, instructed how to work it. And when I played it back, it went for the outside, then for leisure. <laughs> and I thought, what's wrong with this? I've got it on the wrong speed. There were three speeds on it. Yeah. So I went to the next speed. That was... Well, well. And what had happened, uh, after my instructions the previous night at TUE, I'd left the thing on all night and it drained the battery.
2: Okay.
1: And I thought, what am I going to do? And, he, and we're walking down and I said, uh, Tom, I can't go to the secretary's office. Everyone's in there. and They're taking all the prices for the interstate book bookmakers. I said, well, we've got to go somewhere. So we'll go to a garage. So we got down the bottom, hopped in the car, went down to the Caltech service station, the local service station. And there were all these, I said, go, mate, fill it up and can I urgently use your phone? Mm. And he said, sure, mate, away you go. So I rang the control room at TUE and the, a guy there by the name of Pommy Bob, you remember him?
0: Oh, uh, vividly.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he answers, he says, where have you been? Where have mm. you been, Shadow? Oh, I said there was a shocking delay at the start. Horses broke through and it took them so long to get back there and stall them, put them back in the stores. Oh, I understand. He said, are you ready to go? And so I timed myself, I had my watch. And um, I said, yep, okay, play the recording. So I put it up to the mic, to the phone. And then go, they're racing, and on the, the first out, so and so And I did the whole lap, right round to the finishing post. And it was a phantom, what they call a phantom call.
2: Mm.
1: And uh, he said, oh, that was a great call, mate. Thank you. We'll get that to air straight away. Knowing Chris Kearns, who was on air coordinating mm. had been saying for the previous twenty minutes or so. Mm. Shortly, that delayed broadcast from Graham McNeese said "bong bong." Mm. Anyhow, um, they played it. I never said a word. Drove off when I turned around. People clapped me. Every <laughs> car that came into the garage <laughs> <laughs> said, oh, look at this bloke here on the illness, phone." Me, yeah. Anyhow, so I went back and uh, got away with it. I wouldn't dare tell days. Mm. But he found out eventually.
0: Of course he did.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's it's a closely oh, yes. knit group, the media world.
1: Oh, yes. I thought I'd get
0: <laughs> Well, Anyhow, you, you obviously didn't, and you're still here to tell the story.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Shad, you lost your great friend and mentor, Frank Kennedy, to yeah. leukemia in the mid-1970s, <laughs> leaving a very big void in your life.
1: Oh, yeah look as I said they became my second family yeah. I'd spend I don't think there's was one Christmas up until a couple of years ago that I did not spend with the Kennedys mm. and then I'd go and spend it up I'd drive up home to my mum yep. up on the central coast um, but no I, it was a void he looked after me very protective and um People loved him on, on television, you know, the, for the little punter, 50-cent mm. little punter. He'd stick up with him all the time. Mm. And he and Max on Punters Postmortem, uh, they get into great arguments. But, of course, uh, were very... Uh, after
0: he got sick, you filled in for him on that Channel 7 program for quite a while.
1: Mm. Yes, I, I, um, I used to fill in when they'd go away for a two-week holiday mm. on Punters Postmortem where Ian Craig was on, the, you know, the host. Yeah. And uh, then when Frank became ill uh, in 1976, and slowly, gravely ill, yeah. and eventually he passed away, um, I did that show of uh, Sunday Morning, Rex Mossop's show, and um, then uh, it was through Ray Warren, yeah. who used to work... Uh, part-time and before full-time at Channel 10. Mm. He got me in with uh, John Bailey, the late John Bailey, to come and produce the sports bulletin of a Saturday and a Sunday. I'd go in in the afternoons, So I was working at both for a little while. And then Tom Barnett, who was the news director at 10, he wanted to put me on full-time and offer me a job. And that was the beginning of one, nine wonderful years at
0: 10. And uh, that humble start uh, took you a long way because in 1983 you became the regular presenter of sport on the Channel 10 News. I can still see you sitting up there with that shock of blonde hair.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, John Cootes uh, was the sports reader. Fabulous man. L- loved him. And uh, he eventually went out and started up John Coote's Furniture Warehouse, which became very big. Ron Casey came over from Channel 9 after that really? for I'm not too sure how long. And then when he left, uh, the late the 83, um, I went on to be, the, as you say, the sports presenter alongside Katrina Lee and Tim Webster. Funny days.
0: The satellite television phenomenon came to our shores in 1986. It started off in a low-key way, but you had a vision of its future role in sports media. And you took a giant step in leaving Channel 10 to become executive sports producer and chief presenter at Club Superstation, which was owned by Robert holmes a how did you kick off, Shad? What audience did you have, and what did you offer them?
1: Well, the the big thing in that around that time, I mean, the government the government wouldn't let it happen until well until 1986. It basically started, as you said. Hmm. Um, so we had, ironically, my news director Tom Barnett, had left and started up a company called um, Service Station with the late Lyle McCabe. Mm. And he wanted me to come over and fulfill the roles you just said there. And it was a big choice. I had been to America, fortunately, a few times Mm. in preceding years and knew very well of the cable market over there, how it was infiltrating the audiences of the free to work like the ABC, NBC, CBS. And so, I took the job. Uh, took with me a very young tape operator named Gary Deans, mm. who's become one of the biggest uh, news, uh, biggest directors of television in in Sydney. And uh, he had, they had done a deal with ESPN in America, so we got access to just about all their material, um, the football, um, even some of the boxing and. But many other things like tractor pulling and, <laughs> uh, dare I say, mother wrestling.
2: Um,
1: but we had to, you know, the, the big race was on to get the rights for the racing, like New South Wales racing and later Victoria racing. Mm-hmm. So we started up that. Uh, we, we had a nightly program called Sports Centre. Kerry mm-hmm. Buckridge eventually came over and partnered with me at the desk. Mm-hmm. And there was another young fellow by the name of Peter Overton who started in that same year, December of that same year, uh, as an apprentice, you might say. Wonderful, wonderful talent, as you know, and a great mate. And um, AJC, basically, and PBL had the rights, and for all the clubs in New South Wales, uh, they would negotiate the rights for... where where, where are they going to distribute the pictures Mm. now around the same time Alan Bond had started up Sky Channel in Perth Mm. and they were building up and I think the main races they got over there were the Perth races Mm. anyhow um, eventually the decision came down and Bond won the day Uh, so it was that they were going to do the gallops but prior to that we had been negotiating with Ken LaGrange, mm. with Keith Nolan and the late Bert Lily. We went down and did a presentation. They decided to break away mm. and start up. And similarly, the Newcastle Jockey Club, Brian Judd, they did the same thing and broke away and went with super, um, Superstation. Mm. We got the Greyhounds as well. Um, involved. I was involved with the Greyhounds, as you mentioned. Mm. Um, and it was, we went to where basically in September of 1986 with what we had. And in October, I'm pretty sure it was October of the same year, Sky Channel in Perth started televising the Gallup meetings in New South Wales and eventually Victoria. And uh, so we were battling away for the next 18 months. But we still battled on. One of the big things for us was um, pay-per-view television and the World Middleweight Title Championship, Mm. Sugar Ray Leonard and marvellous Marvin Hagler. Mm. And that in Las Vegas, and that came down to uh, a split decision. It was extraordinary. Now, I couldn't negotiate with 7, 9 and 10 to get vision of their rugby league or golf or sports centre in those days because we were very minor to them but when that happened guess what mm. they needed vision for the news of that because it was the biggest sports thing of the day let alone the month mm. and I, that's when I did a trade off and uh, so we could use their material they could use ours so it was pretty special until late 87 and Holmes the court just dropped us no more backing dropped us we were told and I called my uh, in as many as I could, and sat down at a little fridge in my office, and we having beers. And my concern is, where am I going to place them all? Because so many from Channel Ten had come over to work with us full time. Timmy McDonald, mm. oh dear, we did we did some wonderful things, happy. So anyhow, it was the following Saturday morning. <clears throat> we were told that, or Tom told me, that um, all's okay. Bonders bought us for a dollar, plus the debt, of course. So we became Sky Channel. Mm. Uh, Eventually, we were a superstation, but then we had to show cause why we could operate it better out of our studios in Sydney than Perth. Mm. And we put together this big presentation. They all come over. And with the help, obviously, of um, Channel 9's boss, Sam Chisholm, Mm. um, all came to... The Adventures Forest, where we started from, and it's still there today. So, an adventuresome ride it was.
0: Well, you spent nine years hosting racing on the old Sky Channel up until 1998, when uh, the races at that stage, up until 1998, were beamed into pubs and clubs only. Then came the huge announcement that Sky had gained the green light Put racing into homes all over Australia. It was a massive thing, and uh, I think one of the on-air slogans said it all. If you recall, at the time, we're going to a commercial break, and uh, remember your at, at home on the track. track. <laughs> said it all, didn't yeah,
1: it? it? said it all, Tappy. Yes, and that was um, that was when you had announced uh, that you were retiring from. Race calling. I remember that day vivid. In fact, I did a documentary on it, Call from the mm. It was a monumental uh, stage because after your f- incredible years in in calling races and you became a presenter, like a co-presenter with me. Mm. And uh, we went to where, now that day, two horses uh, would go on to be uh, champions.
2: Yep, on our
1: opening One day, was, yep. You, well, yes, I, you want to recall for me?
0: Well, you tell me.
1: One was Sunline. Yeah. Which uh, she was a, three, a three-year-old filly then at the time, Yeah. if memory serves me correctly.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and it won the furious stakes. Mm-hmm. And then look what she went on to do after that. A uh, couple of Doncasters and... Two um, cocks plates. Two cocks plates. Oh, heaven's. And the other horse that won that day, I think it may have been at Chelmsford, I'm not sure, Tabby.
0: Yeah, it was. Might,
1: might and Power.
0: Might and Power.
1: And, and would he go on to complete its incredible deeds mm. um, in the Caulfield and Melbourne Cups and so on.
0: On the opening so it day a, of racing into yes, homes, it was. we got two horses like that, Might and Power yeah. and Sunline.
1: Yeah, it was exciting, wasn't it?
0: Oh, it was a hell of a day.
1: A hell of a day, but, you know, it was monumental day. And, of course, all um, well, the rest is history. Um,
0: you hosted the Sunday morning review program, Racing Retro, for 12 <laughs> years.
1: Yeah, yes, and I was probably losing you at the end, I'm not sure.
0: That was a great show.
1: It was a wonderful show. And it was a wonderful review program, and we used to get um, um, good ratings as well, too. You know, A lot of people turned in Sunday morning to to watch that we'd go longer on big race carnivals but those days too tappy would go would be going down to the tracks nearly every week mm. um for the big race days you know the group ones or whatever they are yeah uh, it was it was extraordinary um and the way of course it is built up today i mean look at it today and greg radley and the team there are just brilliant that the, the presentations I really think so absolutely brilliant
0: we've got to finish uh, part one at this stage on the podcast uh, but I've still got a, a lot of questions for you mate so stand by and we'll be back with Graham McNeese for part two shortly the stallion representation at the English ready to race sale on October the 22nd is a who's who of the breeding industry better than ready Nakoni, Brazen Bow not a single doubt. Deep Field, Rubik, Done Deal, and Shooting to Win. And we've just scratched the surface. Add to that Hinch and Brook, So You Think, Holy Roman Emperor, Spirit of Boom, I Am Invincible, Starcraft, Medaglia Doro, Tavistock, More Than Ready, Written Tycoon, No Nay Never, and Zoo Star. English again team up with Racing New South Wales by presenting the sale 3 days after the Everest. The timing will ensure the attention of world buyers who'll be focused on Sydney at Everest time. October 22nd is the date for the English ready to race sale at Riverside.